If you have your copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to open them up. This morning we're going to look at Revelation 17 and 18, but I want you to know a couple things. Um, 17, 18, and 19 all fit together, but there was no way that I could get all three of those chapters in a message this morning. So we're going to look at chapters 17 and 18 because those two chapters say the same thing back to back. Chapter 18 of Revelation is just more of a poetic explanation and reiteration of what's said in chapter 17. So I'm going to read select verses from chapter 17, but I'm going to refer to chapter 18 when we dive in to look at it together. But just know that these chapters, 17, 18, 19, are all together. And as much as I wish I could have gotten them together, I couldn't this week. So next week we'll look at 19 and show how they all fit. Got me? Make sense? All right. Before I read, one more thing. I want to go back through our preliminary principles. And I hope that these are getting into you. And I hope that you're thinking about them. And I hope you're wrestling with them. Because unless you're settled on these four things, the book of Revelation will not make sense. Or you will come up with a much different interpretation than the, what we're doing. So here is preliminary principle number one. God always finishes what he starts. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. And it's also a reminder that the way that God set up the world will be the way the world will be. When God set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2, that's his intention. And there's no sin or rebellion that can stop it. So what we see in Revelation is that it's connected to Genesis and everything in between. So the book of Revelation isn't some weird message that's disconnected from everything else in the Bible it's not disconnected from God's intention in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the fulfillment of it all so that everything fits together. So God always completes what he starts. Second, we need to think about time the way God thinks about time. So when you read the New Testament, what you find is that the last days started with the coming of Christ. So that means we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So the book of Revelation doesn't begin to tell us about the last days. Revelation gives us a summary of all of the last days. In other words, what has been happening since the coming of Christ and what will continue to happen until his second coming. But it doesn't start to tell us about the last days. We've been living in it for 2,000 years. Third, when we approach the book of Revelation, we should have a posture of humility we should come to this book with humility. There are things we know and there are things that we don't. To say that a different way, Revelation is not a code book. It's not a puzzle book. It's not a weird Sudoku where you gotta read these numbers and try to put them in the right order to figure it out. It's a picture book. It is giving us images. The images are given to us to fire up our imagination. The images are given to us to get us deep down in the feels. It's meant to get at our will. It's meant to get at our intellect all through imagery. There's a difference between hearing Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and sits on the throne and to see it. Revelation is showing it to us. Showing us the gospel. Showing us the effects of the gospel. And that's meant to fire us up. And give us confidence and hope. Fourth and finally, and perhaps most importantly, 
Jesus did it. He actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection. So when he was crucified and rose from the dead, he actually defeated death. He actually crushed the head of the serpent. And he actually restricted evil and darkness in many, many ways. And it means that he actually died to save a people. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make you savable and you just have to seal the deal. He is a literal savior who gave his life for the church, for his sheep. And that means that revelation is just the unfolding of all that Christ has accomplished. It's the unfolding of his powerful and definitive work through the cross and the empty tomb. So, if you don't think that Christ actually accomplished something, then more than likely you'll have a tendency to look at the world and focus way more on evil and think that evil is much more powerful than it is. And you might even think that evil might win. And you might even think that evil will win until Jesus in the last moment swoops in and changes everything. And that's not the book at all. The book is the unfolding of Christ's victory even as darkness and sin grows. It can never overtake what Christ has already accomplished. All right, that said, let's dive into Revelation 17. Listen to this. This is the Word of God. If you haven't read beforehand you, in coming today, if you didn't prepare, then I'm sorry, but this is going to shock you. So hang in there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came, to, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
I bet you weren't expecting that this morning. Well, let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We ask, Lord, that you would work the truth into us. That you would continue to do spade work in our hearts. That you would continue to till the ground, uh, the deepest parts of us. And that you would continue to plant seeds of gospel truth and, and water those seeds and cause the increase of the gospel to produce fruit in our lives. Help us to see the world the way you do. Help us to see our lives and ourselves the way that you do. Bring us to Christ again and again and again. And Holy Spirit, we know this is all your work. So have your way with us for your glory. Amen. Before we slide into looking at these two chapters together this morning, I need to remind you of two things. The first one is this. I need to remind you of the truth of the Bible. The Bible is entirely true. The Bible never, ever, ever, ever does any type of bait and switch. The Bible presents reality as is, and the Bible invites us into that reality, meaning the Bible is constantly inviting us to come into reality out of our delusion and out of our misunderstanding. And the Bible often does that by talking about things that are uncomfortable to us, like prostitution. Be glad I didn't read the King James Version. It has even more strange words that make us more uncomfortable. But the idea is the same. The point is, even though this is uncomfortable to talk about this morning, God is inviting us to see things as they really are, and he's inviting us out of our delusion into what is true and real, because God always, always, always uses the truth to set us free. Always. He's always inviting us into truth, which means he's always inviting us into freedom. So don't forget that about the word of God. It's true, and it's what sets us free. The second thing is this. this the, the, the chapters that we're looking at in 17, 18, and 19, in particular 17 and 18 this morning, talk about a prostitute. And it's connected to what we looked at in chapters 12 and 13 and 14. You might remember that, you might not. Remember that those chapters, 12, 13, and 14, were showing us the counterfeit. Do you remember this? The unholy trinity, the counterfeit truth. Remember there was a red dragon, which represents Satan. And there was a beast that came out of the sea that represents government and the state. And then there was a land beast that through signs and wonders pointed people to the state, to the land beast. Remember signs and wonders, the counterfeit Holy Spirit that tries to get us to believe a false message, this unholy spirit. This morning, we are still talking about the counterfeit. Remember that when you read through the Revelation, it is giving us cycles, bringing us ever closer to the finale. And each time things are reiterated, we go deeper into them. So we understand 
in new ways what God is talking about and reality. So that means this morning we're still talking about the counterfeit, but what we're understanding about the counterfeit is that the counterfeit actually functions like a prostitute. You get that? That means that the red dragon, our great enemy, uses the government, Babylon. It's symbolic of any government. And he uses it to oftentimes function like a prostitute. And as uncomfortable as that may be, God's inviting us into reality. Are you ready to jump in? All right, so here's where we're going. Let's see what John sees, and then our old faithful, so what? All right? So let's try to see what John sees. Look where this chapter begins. There's an angel that comes to John. Look at it in verse 1. It's the angel that is connected to the previous chapters that were responsible for distributing the seven bowls. An angel comes to John and says, John, I want to show you something. Come and see this. And look at what verse 1 says. Please look at this. It says, John, I want to show you that the great prostitute is judged. Do you see that? Now, we need to stop right here just for a minute and really think about this. This is communicating the tone and the essence of these entire chapters. I want to try to illustrate it to you this way. Those of you in the business world, I need you to put on your business hat right now, and we just need to think strictly business for a moment. Can we do that? Those of you that are in the workforce every day of the week, listen to this. If I were to come to you, strictly business-minded here, if I were to come to you and say, hey, I can show you, and I want to show you, the inner workings of your greatest competitor and how he is doomed. Would that excite you a little bit? Sidebar, I know competition is really important in business. Not against that at all. I think it's vital. It's not what I'm talking about. If I could show you the inner workings of your greatest competitor and how it was doomed, would that excite you a little bit? Would you get a little bit of wind in your sails? Would you think to yourself, you know what? I need to keep going. I need to keep doing what I'm doing because I know my greatest competitor is doomed to fail. Wouldn't that excite you? For those of you that like sports analogies, and this, this is for those of you that are like really die-hard sports fanatics, if I were to come to you and say, I want to show you and tell you the secret sauce of your greatest rival and show you how they do what they do and what they do and why they excel in these areas and how they're doomed to fail. Would that excite you? Let me tell you, it would me. Because my rival's been winning for a long time. A long, way too long for me. I would love that. I'll give you one more example. If I could come to you and say, here is the greatest military threat to our country, and here's all of the secret intelligence to that great military threat and how they are doomed, wouldn't that make you feel a little bit better? Really? There's no bait and switch here, wouldn't it? That's what the angel's doing with John. That's what he's doing with us. That's what he wants us to see. 
He wants us right from the jump to realize that the great prostitute is judged. It is, he is, she is doomed. And if we're going to understand this passage, we've got to see what John sees, and we've got to have the sense that from the beginning, victory is being announced. Do you get it? All right, so here's the description. Look at verse 4 through 6. The prostitute is arrayed with, with purple and, and linen and jewels and pearls and gold and jewelry. She looks really, really good. And she has a bowl in her hand that she offers and says, here's what I have to offer you. And it's abominations and immorality and all kinds of bad things. And yet she's offering that to anyone. And oh, by the way, the text also tells us about her followers. If you look in verse 2 and verse 8 and verse 15, these are her followers. Kings of the earth, peoples of the earth, nations, languages, multitudes. These are the ones that follow her. In other words, John is seeing the prostitute and he can see that she is really attractive and she looks really rich, which means she appears to be incredibly successful, which means when she offers immorality and abominations, they seem really good because she's so successful and because she's so confident. And by the way, she's available. She's available all the time. And she has something for you and there are lots of people that are enjoying her. And there are lots of nations that are enjoying what she provides. And she's saying, come on in. Come on. I got something that will satisfy you. John sees all of that. He sees it. Now that's what basically happens in these two chapters. So what? What does this mean? Well, let's go back to the opening verse and tease it out a little bit more. So what? What does this have to do with my life? Well, if I were to tell you the intel, the goings-on, the inner workings of your greatest competitor and how they were doomed, wouldn't that excite you and encourage you? Wouldn't it? Let's go back to that. Wouldn't that give you a little bit of confidence? Wouldn't that make you think, you know, maybe they're not as successful as I thought they were. Maybe we need to keep doing what we're doing. Or your rival. Or the greatest military threat. It would, on, in our daily lives, it would make us realize, you know what? These other powers that are military threats to us, I don't need to worry about it. I need to keep doing what I'm doing. Right? Here's the catch. In order for us to receive that information... We have to acknowledge that what dooms them dooms us too. Follow that? As much as we should be encouraged and excited and, and be positive about moving forward, we have to recognize that what dooms others, the same thing dooms us. So what does this have to do with my life? Well, three things. Here's the first one. The prostitute is really seductive. 
Nothing new there. Shouldn't be a surprise to you. The prostitute is really seductive. That should not surprise you. But God uses this imagery because he's telling us something about temptation and he's telling us something about our hearts. And he's using this image. Look at, look at verse 6. What does it tell you about John, the apostle John, the one who loved Jesus and Jesus loved him? And oh, by the way, the one who's been exiled on an island and it's just been him and Jesus. What does it say about John, the last phrase of verse 6? He was astonished at her. He was mystified. He saw her beauty and her seduction. And he realized, oh my goodness, this, this, is, this is very enticing. So much so that the angel had to say, hey John, uh, stop staring over there. Look back over here. I got more to tell you. This is enticing. The work of the prostitute is alluring. And if you need me to be more clear, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 18, it is God summoning his people to say, come out of her, come away from her. Why? Because we as followers of Christ have the same kind of alluring temptation. We can give in to the same allurement and the same seductive temptation. We can give in. We do. The prostitute is seductive. It shouldn't surprise us. Shouldn't surprise us at all. As a matter of fact, let's see. God uses this kind of imagery because we all know what it's like. You see, God is using this imagery not because we have all fallen into giving in to physical prostitution. He's meaning it spiritually. This is going to require a little bit of reflection in your life. This is going to require a little bit of uh, testing your motives and thinking about your motives. But every single one of us knows what it's like to be attracted to something. Job. Person. Attracted to being right. Attracted to money. Attracted to power. Attracted to an idea of life. All of us know what it's like to be attracted to something, right? And then all of us know what it's like to think, you know what, that's not just attractive to me, I think I want that, right? And then to pursue that, right? You know what it's like to be attracted to something and then order your schedule, rearrange your emotions, rearrange your time so that you can go after that thing that you want, so that you can have it, and then once you have it, you enjoy it, but then you think you really need it. But then it goes beyond just needing to think, oh no, it's not just that I need this, I have to have this in order to live, right? This is relatable to every single person. This is why this is one of the, of the most um, used images by God in the Bible to get at our hearts because we all know what it's like to find something attractive, desire it, figure out a way to get it, want it, need it, have to have it, can't live without it. All of us know what that's like. And you need to remember that temptation doesn't work this way. Temptation doesn't come to you and say, hey, 
I want to leave you anxious for the rest of your life. Temptation doesn't come to you because it's seductive. It doesn't come to you and straight away say to you, you know what? I want to make you addicted to yourself. Temptation doesn't come to you and say, I want you to have this, but the effect will be you can never admit that you're wrong and you're blinded to who you really are and blinded to how you really come across and blinded to what everyone else sees about you. Temptation doesn't come to you and say, you know what? I want to leave you making every decision out of fear the rest of your life. Temptation doesn't come to you and say, I want to destroy your, fa- your family, I want to destroy your marriage, or I want to destroy your soul. That's not the way temptation works. It's much more subtle. It's much more subtle. Temptation comes to us with the allure of something that is attractive to us. Remember the mark of the beast? In chapters 12 and 13 and 14, you remember the mark? Remember that? Remember the counterfeit has a mark? And it's a mark that's on the head and it's on the hand, you remember? Remember the mark of the beast is not physical, it's spiritual. Remember the mark on the head is meant to communicate ideology and the hands are to carry out the ideology. Temptation comes to us through ideology. Temptation comes to us through ideology and says, think about this. Think about that. This is how you will gain pleasure. This is how you will find comfort. This is where you will get power. This is where you can find your identity. And so then as you begin to take that ideology in, what begins to happen? You begin to live it out. Temptation is always subtle, and it comes to us through ideology. It comes to us through tempting our heart. So you see, when our great enemy, oftentimes what he loves to do is use politics and government and empires. And the allure is this. Hey, if you can be in power, you can target followers of Jesus And you can persecute them. Did you notice that the prostitute was not tipsy, was drunk on the blood of the followers of Christ and martyrs? Did you see that? She loves to entice, to get power so that followers of Christ can be targeted and oftentimes persecuted. But you know what else she loves? She loves to allure followers of Christ She loves to allure them by saying, it's not just the gospel, it's the gospel plus power and the empire and government and politics. And God's people begin to be tempted into not finding comfort and wealth and hope in Jesus, but begin to think, no, I want to find my comfort in politics. I want to find my identity in the state. I want to find comfort in political agendas. Never denying the gospel, just saying it's the gospel plus this. So that at the end of the day, what happens to God's people, what can happen to us, is that we begin to think, oh, well, Jesus has said this, but 
I am really attached to finding my hope in this political posture. I'm really attached to finding my hope in this view of government. And so that means that I end up being really anxious and really fearful about what's happening in government. And that means that that identity and power and hope and comfort begins to be stronger in my life than Jesus and the kingdom of God. So that God's people become distracted by what is unstable. And beloved, hear me, please. Have strong views of government and politics, please. It matters but it's down here compared to the kingdom of God. Don't be allured by the prostitute such that your emotions, such that your outlook, such that your comfort, such that your identity are wrapped in something, Jesus plus something else. She entices all of us. She entices everyone. It's a temptation for all of us. And beloved, this is not new. It's not new. It's not new. When the God-man showed up in the first century, do you remember what people were looking for in the Messiah? They were looking for someone to overthrow the Roman Empire. Remember that? Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus was to ascend back to the Father? Do you you remember what Jesus said? Go to Jerusalem and wait for me and pray because the Spirit is going to come. Do you remember what the response of the disciples was in Acts chapter 1? Jesus, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? God's people have always struggled with this temptation to think that we can get more accomplished if it's the kingdom of God plus the empire. And beloved, the empire is inherently unstable and it always has been. It always has been and it always will be. Rome fell, Greece fell. One day, should the Lord tarry, China will fall. The United States will fall, perhaps. Can we say that? Can we take that in? What matters is the kingdom of God. The church and the gospel and Jesus. So what? The prostitute is seductive. Secondly, just to be clear, number two, just to be clear, the prostitute has fallen. The counterfeit fails. When you look back through chapter 17 and 18, he actually gives us four ways that this is true. And we need to hear all four of them. I'm going to cover them quickly. Look in verse 14. Why is a prostitute fail? Why is she doomed? Why is this a horrible tactic for Satan to try to do this, to allure us away? Why? Because the lamb conquers. She sets herself against the lamb in verse 14, but the lamb has conquered her. Jesus, beloved, has actually accomplished something. And his death and resurrection guarantee that there will never be a government that can overtake Christianity. 
can never stop the church, can never stop the gospel, can never keep the kingdom of God from growing. Will you take that in? She can't win because Jesus has died. He is the lamb who was slain and he has restricted the powers of darkness. So therefore we should rejoice. She's doomed and the kingdom will not fail. That's just one reason. Here's another one. Look at verse 16. Why? Why will she fail? Look at verse 16. Because the beast turns on her. What's that telling us? Evil always destroys itself. Always. Empires are overthrown because they turn on themselves. And everybody fights. And everybody just brings everything to nothing. Evil always turns on itself. Always. Don't you know this in your own life? How many times have you lied about something? Only to turn around and have to say another lie. Only to turn around to have to lie again to keep the second and the first one going. Evil always destroys itself. That's the purpose of evil, to destroy. Verse 17. Here's another reason why evil is doomed. Because God's purposed for her not to to not succeed. He's purposed to bring her down. Look at what it says. God has worked into this so that they will accomplish his purpose. Evil can't win because God says it won't win. And finally, here's an image for you. Look in chapter 18, verse 21. If you're more visual in nature, this is the image that God gives us. An angel picks up a gigantic millstone and seemingly throws it over the precipice of heaven. And this big, gigantic stone falls into the sea and causes this huge splash as if to say, that is the prostitute, that is the kingdoms of this world that hit the sea. And what do they do? Go straight to the bottom. Can't float. Can't survive. Done. They're doomed. Beloved, be refreshed with that, encouraged. That leads us to the third thing of the so what. There's only one way forward. There's only one way forward. And that way forward is Jesus. Beloved, if you have found yourself being allured by the prostitute and falling, fallen into her temptation... The only way out is Jesus. The only way out is for you to understand that his kingdom, his bride, his church is far more precious. It's a treasure. And to belong to him is to belong to his church and his bride. And if you've fallen into temptation, come out. Come to Jesus. And if you've been on the receiving end of unfaithfulness, have you been on the receiving end, the only way for you to heal is Jesus. And he will heal you. And the only way forward is not just to know that individually and personally we have to keep coming back to Christ who is forever faithful when we are not. And the only way forward when we've been hurt by infidelity is to know that Christ will always be faithful and that will heal us. 
But the only way forward is Jesus because he's the only one that can change our perspective. What does God have to do to convince you that Jesus won? Well, what, what does he have to do for us to have greater confidence in his power and greater confidence in the work of Christ and greater confidence in his kingdom? What else does God have to do? He's been saying the same message to us over and over and over throughout Revelation. He even explicitly tells us here in verse 1 of chapter 17 that she's doomed. What else does God have to do to get us to be confident in the gospel and confident in Jesus? What else? And beloved, if you find yourself growing in your love for the gospel and growing in your love for Jesus and growing in your love for the church, now's the time to plan. You know, as things start to loosen up in our culture and things get back to whatever the new normal is going to be, how are you going to love the kingdom and pursue the kingdom? Are you getting excited about the possibility of reaching out to this neighbor or that neighbor? Are you praying about those that God has brought into your life? That once things loosen up a little bit more, you might be able to connect with them in a more personal way? If the gospel is getting deeper down into you and you're loving the gospel more and loving his kingdom, how are you planning to love the kingdom and to show that when things loosen up a little bit more? Who are you going to love? Who are you looking forward to pursuing? Will you give of your resources to this? Will this excite you to build the kingdom with your resources, not just your financial resources, but with your gifts and your skills and your time? Are you excited about the possibility of, a, of our church becoming more healthy and getting back together again? Are you excited about the possibility of being involved in missions and in particular planning churches? Are you excited about that? Are you excited about your neighborhood? Are you excited about your work? Are you excited about someone that you know that's far away from God that you want to pursue? Are you excited about this? Now's a good time to plan and pray and seek God. Because of the gospel is getting deeper into us, then we ought to be growing in confidence. Not in ourselves, humble confidence. We know the end. We know the end. The kingdoms of this earth will fall, but not God's kingdom. 